Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It's the Prestige TV Podcast. My name is Bill Simmons, joined by Big Waz, Sean Fantasy. We're going to talk about the final episode of We Own This City, a show that I already miss. It's done. <laughs> it's a wrap. Six episodes and gone. Uh, the perfect example of how a limited series should work. Sean has not been with us during these We Own, Own the City recaps. Chris Ryan, if you want to listen to The Watch, he interviewed George Pelicanos uh, on The Watch on Monday night. Talked about the show a ton there. So if you want CR's takes, go there. Fantasy, you haven't been on. Son of a cop. What'd you think of the show? <laughs> uh, complicated, right? I mean, obviously, incredible portrayal of the outrage and confusion of living in a city in 2022. Um, I thought it was amazing. I mean, obviously, I'm a huge fan of The Wire, just like you guys. It's been fun listening to you talk about it week to week. But um, this was, even by the standards of David Simon, George Pelicano stories, pretty bleak. And pretty hopeless at the end in a lot of ways. As fun as it was to watch this show, it's a real wake-up call to the fact that we got no answers for everything that's fucked up in our country right now. Waz, you cheated. You did research before you finished the show. <laughs> I stayed true to trying to learn as it went along. Uh, was this bleaker? Did this end bleaker than you even expected, even though you knew it was going to happen? Yeah, I think so. Because obviously the show starts with these guys getting arrested. So we know they're going down. Right. Like we know what the outcome is. Um, so it's not it's sort of anticlimactic in that way. But there was some pretty, pretty bleak moments. And I think the most bleak moment, even more so than um, Sean Souter killing himself, was Wayne Jenkins in court making sure to pin that bad arrest on him um, because the guy had killed himself. So he knew he couldn't, you know, come out and defend himself. And the guy only killed himself because he had worked with Wayne Jenkins. It was just like, like the circ, like the circular nature of it. It's like this guy works with Wayne, sees crimes happening, can't snitch on him because he can no longer be a cop if he snitches on a cop. Those guys get caught, so now he's a party to a crime, and now it's over. So he ends up killing himself because he can't do anything for the rest of his life. And the last nail in the coffin is this guy fucking pinning that bad arrest on him. I was like, whoa, wow, that is some dark, dark, dark shit right there. Well, then you had that last 15 minutes, basically, when they start throwing up the graphics for, here's what happened to this person, and oh every God. one of them is bad. None of them is like, this person went on to become the senator of Maryland. Like, no, <laughs> no this person went to jail. That person went to jail. Oh, this person goodness. had to resign. And it's just corruption left and right. Sean, how'd you feel about how they handled the Sean Suter thing because it's still a little ambiguous. I think if you actually really deep dive it, I mean, Waz, you, you seem like you definitively think he killed himself. It seems yeah. all the evidence is headed that way. There's still like that slight door ajar that maybe 
you know, maybe he got killed because he was testifying the next day. But um, the way they handled it, I thought was really smart where it, it seemed like you could see him kind of melting down. Um, we didn't actually see him do it. So they left it a little open. But what'd you think? Well, you know, in, in real life and especially in this, the slow hustle, which is the doc that Sonia Sohn, who played Kima in the wire um, directed the, it's a little bit more ambiguous in terms of how they characterize what happened with Suter. And, so that you know, they Pelicanos and Simon made a choice here to just say he killed himself. You know, we're, we're basically using this independent review to to confirm that he took his own life and that he did so for the reasons it was just outlined. Um, I thought it was a pretty amazing bit of filmmaking. You know, really anxious making and really uh, kind of confusing in the good way. You know, I was trying to kind of figure out what actually was happening. You could see he was kind of racked by the kind of guilt and frustration and concern that he had over this whole situation, but um. Awesome performance by Jamie Hector, basically with no words, you know, like basically five to 10 minutes of the show just devoted to him kind of spinning out and creating this, um, this story to, to, you know, to take his own life and seem as if he had done so in the line of duty. I thought it was really well done as for like what's real and what's not real. I mean, this is a dramatized series of events that really happened, you know, it's a docudrama. And so they made a choice and obviously there's a lot of evidence supporting the fact that he did take his own life, but it's just like a really tragic and again, like pretty bleak portrayal of what happened there. I mean, it's really tough to imagine a police officer having to do that because of the circumstances that he came up in, in, in Baltimore at that time. Yeah. So like that, I like the casting of the cop who was there where he was good. like, just, just kind of iffy enough that you're one. He's like, he, he, he got shot. I don't know. That. And it was confused. just like, wait a second. Am I, what is, who's, what's this guy? What's his agenda? But you know, I think he was a rookie. I doubt really but, sincerely doubt he's involved. But Bill, I think that's the point basically of the show. It's like the reason that there's a cloud of suspicion is because these dudes are so fucking dirty, right? Like that's why it's very insidious. It's like, <laughs> everything breaks down if the police are considered to be untrustworthy. And we see it at yeah. the courthouse where they're throwing out all of Wayne's cases. Um, you see it here where people are like, did he get killed by the cops? I mean, these are the same guys stealing 80 bucks off of citizens, planting guns and drugs on people. Did he get killed by them? Who knows, right? Like, I think that's kind of the point of the show. It's like, bro, like... <laughs> Everything breaks down. You can't do anything if you remove the trust factor from the police. And and obviously, I think um, Pelicanos and David Simon did an incredible job of illustrating that. Well, and then they, at the tail end, they talk about like by 2022, the murders are the worst they've ever been. And it, there's just been... Now, that that's... Not only the case for Baltimore, I think there's a couple of cities that you could say have the stats have gone up. But I think it makes a lot more sense when you see it laid out. And that's the genius of these guys. This is what they did with The Wire, too. They they do the painstakingly put this jigsaw puzzle together so you understand this one big picture outcome of it. Like in The Wire, it was, how does this city, why can't this city, why can't this city stay out of its own way? And it starts at the basic premise of they can't even get the schools right and these people grow up and they can't stay in and then this happens and then... They just lay it out, and they—I thought they did that in this too. By it was only six episodes, but by the end of it, um, I thought—I just felt like the puzzle made sense, and I thought it was the right amount of episodes too. Sean, we talk about this a lot on the rewatchables. Should something be a movie? Should something be a TV show? How long should something be? This was the right amount. Yeah, we're in this moment now where there's so many miniseries like this, like expanded series, and almost all of them are eight to ten episodes, and they all feel too long. And this one, I don't know if it left you wanting more because of how intense this world is that they created, but they did some smart stuff. Like one of the things I feel like is most underrated about The Wire, because we, you know, we love, you know, Stringer and Avon and we love McNulty and Bunk, but I always thought it was a really interesting portrayal of how city government works. And even though Carchetti could be like a cartoonish character at times, it was really good about how you basically make deals to survive in politics. And this only had a couple of scenes like that, but there was that key scene in this last episode where you watch the mayor and the government negotiating with the police commissioner about, you know, pay and overtime and how we're going to balance the budget. And that's real. I mean, that's like the most important part of this story is, is that people are trying to protect power. They're trying to protect money. 
And that's how decisions get made. And that's why this shit gets so fucked up. The same thing that motivates Wayne Jenkins. When Wayne Jenkins can't get the crabs that he wants in the first episode, <laughs> that's the that's the whole skeleton key. That's the the you know the Chekhov's gun of this whole show is people don't feel like they're getting what they deserve. And so they have to fight and break the law to get it. And it happens all the way at the highest echelon of power. That That's incredible. I, I don't know as, as much about Baltimore city politics, but everything that happened with the subsequent police commissioner and then the mayor in the immediate aftermath of this scandal too is wild. I mean, these yeah. people are so corrupt. It's crazy. Yeah, Sean, I was telling Bill and Chris about, you know, growing up under the NYPD where like, it's different from Baltimore. Like in New York, there's 32,000 cops in New York, right? Like this is an army. Um, and as bad as I think the general citizen looks at the NYPD as like this gang and overwhelming force, like they definitely wasn't taking the 15 bucks out of your pocket, right? Um, they were just intimidating as all fuck, you know? But like watching watching Wayne get up there and he's so deep in his corruption that he doesn't even know when he's incriminating himself and the cops. Like, he happily gives them the testimony that allows the judge to throw the case out. It's like, yo, this dude is just straight up not a cop anymore. Like, he doesn't know <laughs> how to do real policing. Like, he straight up was, like, happy. He was like, yeah, we surrounded the car. Fuck you mean? It's a, it's a, we're stopping the guy. Anything could go wrong then. And the, the lawyer looks at the judge like, and it's just so crazy, like how de like this thing is devolved so terribly, where the most decorated cop in the department doesn't even know when he's doing stupid shit anymore. It, it that that scene just blew me away because he was so happy with himself and he got the case thrown out. Well, we've talked a lot about Burnthal as Wayne Jenkins over yeah. the course of these episodes, and this was another just killer episode for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think it's one of the best performances I've seen on a TV show in a while. And I don't, I know he won't win an Emmy and he might not even get nominated because of, uh, you know, that's just how it goes with the Simon Pelicano shows. But, um, he's on my podcast tonight. We taped it a couple weeks ago, but, um, just talking about how he created the character and things like that. I thought he really, he really put it together in this last episode where, he's playing a whole bunch of different pieces of this guy, right? He's trying to pretend he's not scared near the beginning, but he clearly is because he knows the jig is up. He's then all of a sudden we get the flashback scenes where when they find yet another thing in the closet, it's very similar to the and a motherfucking brick, but it's more like he's, he's been in through the situation so many times now. He's just like, Oh yeah. Like he just, no, it's like, it's like turnkey for him at this point. And he's got his new partner who's just, just as corrupt as he is, and they're just the perfect match. And then all the stuff he does in the prison near the end, when he's realizing, like, this is my life now, and I have to have eyes in the back of my head now, and I have a half hour of daylight, and I'm out, and I just, and they do that camera thing at the end where he's just surveying the scene in a 360. I just thought it was exceptional filmmaking and really great acting. Sean, we, we never talked to you about Wayne Jenkins on this pod. Where does he where does he rank for you? Because to me, that's like as good of a any movie character that we've had with a dirty cop, right? Yeah, you've certainly talked to me about Wayne Jenkins off the pod. Uh, he's been a subject of much discussion uh, in the last six weeks in our life. I think um, it's pretty it's up there, right? Because he's a kind of a classic antihero. You know, there's there is someone that there's something that you like naturally about Bernthal. And Bernthal, I don't. This is going to sound like a dig, but it's kind of the opposite. Bernthal is an incredible TV actor. There's a certain kind of acting that you do that is not movie acting. He's not movie star acting. He's talking a lot. He's moving around a lot. He's not holding your gaze with like a movie star pose. He is all over the place. The same way that like, you know, Brian Cranston would be all over the place in Breaking Bad. The same way that some of the characters from The Wire that we love would be all over the place. He kind of knows he has to hold your attention in a pretty intense way. And I'm, I'm, I knew it was coming, but I'm relieved that it had this kind of reflective final act because we were kind of verging on like celebrating one of the dirtiest cops we've ever seen a little bit because he was so magnetic and so funny you know Bernthal is just a hilarious actor just like he was hilarious in King Richard you know he just he has yeah. this natural charisma um but I thought it was like pretty toward force that that scene that you talked about in the prison which is kind of flashing back 
on what feels like an imagined rallying speech that he's giving to all of the cops in the room at the end was, right. like you said, Bill, just incredible filmmaking and an incredible um, juxtaposition of the two the two Waynes, you know, the the forceful, dramatic, exuberant, law-breaking Wayne, and then the guy who's like a little bit insecure and a little bit, you know, feels victimized by things. And going back to that scene in the strip, the strip club that Waz was alluding to, where he's like, I'm not a dirty cop, where you're like, what the <laughs> hell are you talking about, dude? You're like the dirtiest cop that's ever lived. Um, right. Yeah, put I, some respect on my name. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> so like, he's still from anybody. The, the thing with him, you still need the charisma, which means that we have to like you and we have to be conflicted about this. And that I thought that was the final piece of whatever puzzle they're putting together with this show is I still had to be almost seduced by Bernthal's charisma because I had to understand how he was able to pull all of these other guys in his side. And that speech, you're right. I don't know if that speech was real or not. It seems improbable to me that all of these cops were so happy and gave him a standing O. That speech was awesome. And it spoke to kind of how he saw himself in Baltimore versus how we saw him, which was he was just a straight up criminal and, and an absolute terrible thing and a pox on the community. But he didn't see it that way. He saw himself as he was a movie character. What else did you see with Bernthal was? I mean, man, you mentioned liking the guy. I, I think more important than me personally liking the dude is that you understand why his colleagues revered him. Like it's, it's made plain to you. Like he's putting money in people's pockets straight up. There's no, uh, like, and <laughs> what's, there's no nicer thing to do to somebody than to put money in their pocket. Right. And yeah. so you understand why people want to follow him. And I think that last scene illustrates something that's important is that all of that stuff is true. And all of that stuff is what the cops celebrate. When, like, in our industry, there's no like, um, <laughs> this is a great podcast and this is how you know it, right? Um, but with <laughs> the cops, it's like when you retrieve a bunch of guns and drugs, they literally call reporters, bring cameras and microphones, literally get a table and put the stuff on there to display it. Like, we did it, right? And yeah, it's their Academy Awards. Exactly. Right. And and Wayne was great at doing that specific thing. Like when the cops want to celebrate themselves, that's what they do. And he was always delivering those outcomes. And that's why I think all of those damn cops are like, yeah, that's what we're in it for. Um, and the show basically shows you this is how you achieve that stuff. Um, and it's rotten, you know. And, and I just think and there were parts of the show where, you know, the David Simon sort of lecturing happens right via the characters doing all of these info dumps where you know david simons clearly has it stuck in his craw that the drug war is like horrible and all of that stuff and they do all of that but i think the show was was subtle enough about this is what makes you a great cop this is how you achieve those ends and I, it's obvious that it's fucked up like i don't even think it's hard to come to that conclusion you know, Sean Bernthal, Ray Liotta dies a few days ago. And I was thinking during this episode how Bernthal was kind of the 2020s version of Ray Liotta and, and actually is on his way to having the career that I kind of wish Ray Liotta had had because, like, we're doing Copland for the rewatchables this week in honor oh, of Ray. Such a great movie. Um, right. You look at the IMDb and it's like it didn't get to where the promise of Henry Hill and Goodfellas is. And he had some good stuff, but. I think the thing that made him special as an actor was he was so charismatic and likable, but could also, he could be frantic, he could be menacing, he could be all of these different things, and you never truly knew. And that's why Copland is such an important piece to the Ray Liotta thing. And I think Bernthal has a lot of those same qualities. I, I just didn't make that connection until this last episode. What do you think of that, Sean? Cause, am I reaching because Ray died, no. or do you see it? No, I think you're right. Well, I mean, obviously, Copland is about corrupt cops, and this is a show about yeah. corrupt cops. But you're right. There was something kind of sinister and dangerous, but also, like I said, a little bit insecure about Ray Liotta, too. You know, always a little bit like having to over-explain himself in movies and kind of like flying off the handle to justify his actions in the same way that Wayne has to. And, you know, I, th I think Liotta had a great career, but 
by the standards of just like any actor alive, but maybe not by his the people that he was always in films with. I mean, he was in multiple movies with Robert De Niro, so you can't stack up to a career like that. Um, yeah. Bernthal, where he goes is really interesting because like I said, I think he could become, you know, a kind of like a more handsome John C. Riley if he wanted to. You know, he could just be like the number two guy in great films for the next 30 years. But but honestly, the best stuff that he's done to me is this and and The Walking Dead. You know, like I thought on The me Walking too. Dead where we all, you know, kind of recognized his talent. That's where he was at his best. Like he, we want to be with him like almost on a week to week basis. He's just such a captivating dude. Yeah, he could have been in something wild like that, like those kind of roles. I, I'll be interested to see how it plays out because there's a world in which one of these great directors just is like, that's my guy. Like he feels very Tarantino-y to me. I could see Tarantino being like, I'm just working burnt. Like Tarantino's probably not directing anymore, but or somebody like PTA or whoever, where somebody, Adam McKay being like, you know what? That guy should be in Step Brothers with Will Ferrell. Like I, I do feel like there's going to be uh, some variety coming up. What were you going to say, Wes? No, um, I feel like if we're talking about dirty cops, like we gotta mention Denzel and Training Day, cause mm. that's obvious to like <laughs> that, big cop. The, you know, that's the apex of dirty cop and the duality of it, right? Like these guys are oftentimes combating legitimate uh, bad dudes, bad actors in the community, while also themselves performing bad acts against citizens. Yeah. And of course, you know, Denzel and Training Day is just, and, and I think he's channeling a lot of that stuff, right? Like, you know, you want to go home or you want to go to jail? You know, like, I think Bernthal is channeling a lot of that stuff, right? Um, but I do, I find myself thinking about Denzel a lot watching this show because just, you know, some of the stuff that he's doing with the cigarettes and the, like, he's just so good mm. at being this character. Bernthal, to me, was was definitely embodying a lot of that Denzel and Training Day stuff. And a little Richard Gere in Internal Affairs, too. And then, Sean, we didn't talk to you about the treat because we, me and CR and Wiles covered this the last time, but the Treat Williams just casting decision of this, as I know, uh, I know you like that movie. What? What uh how'd you feel about seeing Treat again? Uh I, I mean it's not surprising that Pelicanos and Simon love Prince of the City. Prince of the City, if people haven't seen it, like you said last week, Bill, got you should definitely check it out. Fascinating story. I mean, obviously, you know, Lumet also made Serpico, and there's a little bit of Serpico in this story as well about, you know, who what does it mean to be a good cop versus a bad cop? Um Treat's a great actor. Treat is very similar to where Bernthal could go. You know, Treat never quite got there. He was tabbed yeah. to be a true blue A-list star. And he did a lot of good work over the years, but never quite got there. It's interesting that they made him the avatar of that thing that Waz is describing that's, that Simon likes to do. You know, that like speechifying about the moral mm -hmm. quagmire of our existence because of these bad decisions made at the highest echelons of power. You know, like I, I feel like the show in some ways kind of did Wonmi Mosaku's character like a little dirty because, you know, she starts out as a person who is like really not necessarily hopeful, but trying very hard to rectify the situation within the parameters of her job. And by the end of the show, she's completely disillusioned. And one of the shows, the ways she becomes disillusioned is by having these conversations with Treat Williams' character, who's like, here's what's really going on. I was a, you know, I was somebody who fought this war, and I was actually good at it, but it meant nothing. I've thought about this with my own, my own dad. My dad was a drug cop for years and years and years. He was a sergeant. He ran an undercover team. He did plenty of busts and wiretaps over the years. I have a lot of awareness of what goes into this kind of work. And it can be disillusioning because you do work very hard and you do, it's a very meticulous and boring kind of work that sometimes isn't just about kicking doors in. It's about just sitting in a car for days and mm. whether or not the work that he was doing is justified by the decisions that are made by political parties in the 1980s, we can, we can debate that all we want. I felt like the Nicole Steele character kind of got screwed because it didn't, and she's the only character here who's not real. She's the only composite. And they used her as this like, bullhorn for like the kind of falsity like the naivety that we have in our <laughs> culture about some of this stuff like the drug war is horrible it's been horrible for 40 years like yeah. the three of us know it like if you if you studied it for more than an hour you know it so i that was the only thing that kind of and it had nothing to do with masaku's performance i thought she was awesome i really like her a lot but it was I, I thought that was an odd choice by her to basically be like a victim of the trump administration by the end of the show so, Bill, like you talk about some of the research that I've been doing. Um, mm. 
I actually got a DM from somebody, a friend of mine, and he's like, I used to do criminal justice, non-for-profit consultant work, and we've dealt with a lot of problematic police departments. And he was like, they would never send a black woman from the DOJ to go do that job. <laughs> it just mm. that like because the, the the problem with how our system works is like the DOJ relies on cops, right? Like, so you can't come in there and start bashing skulls. It doesn't work that way. And that's why the character, Sean, is so, you know what I mean, up in the air. And it's kind of ridiculous at, at certain points. It's because it's a composite that's not based in anything reality-based. They would never send some angry black woman in there. And I don't mean angry in like a bad way, stereotypical way. I mean like pissed off and want to get something done, some justice for people in there to do this. That's not how the relationship works between the lawyers who prosecute the offenders and the police who investigate crime. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? It doesn't work like that. You know, I'm glad you brought this up because I remember in the after we did the first podcast about this, and I thought that character, I really enjoyed the performance. And I, I the Jamie Hector character was the one that wasn't working for me because I had so much Marlowe baggage. Mm. I couldn't separate the character he was playing from Marlowe. I just couldn't see it. And it's funny, by the last episode, it flipped. And I thought her character, actually, I thought was, was kind of the weakest. It, it had the worst resolution. Maybe that's how they wanted it to turn out. But I just, I didn't really understand the arc totally with her. Whereas I thought Jamie Hector, especially in this last episode, I thought he was fantastic. And um, that character was completely different than Marlo. It's so hard because he's got such a distinct face and you got the scar and it just... It's just hard to separate it from Marla, but he's doing totally different things, even though he's, you know, obviously not a man of words. He's doing a lot of stuff with his eyes and looking around and just kind of surveying the situation. So that they were a little similar as they were with Marlo and Sean Suter, but man, I thought this was completely different. And uh, I, he's a really good actor. He's Wait, doing the anti burnthal mm. Yeah. Yeah, he scaled it back. Um, did you think he do- had that in him, Sean? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, people pointed out that he's been on Bosch. I've never seen Bosch. Um, maybe Waz, you pointed watch, that out. I, My dad's yeah. favorite show. I was forced uh, to watch a few episodes of that back <laughs> in the days. I um, I thought it was a a really not interesting exactly. Character. We own the city. I will say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no shots to uh, to Titus Welliver. Um, I I I don't I don't know what I thought he was capable of. I thought that character was an amazing example of kind of the skating on the knife's edge of nihilism that the show is really ultimately about because put yourself in Suter's shoes you're so you're He's with a this good guy cop. right yeah <laughs> but, but 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 you find yourself in a situation you know the and a motherfucking brick scene which of course is like now iconic that's something that really happens you've got a guy who sees himself as a good cop who thinks he's upright and moral and who wants to do his job well who's basically to aspire to become murder police right to become a homicide detective which is something that a lot of cops aspire to because it confers like respectability yes and he finds himself with this guy this force of nature who's like i'm doing whatever the fuck i want i'm running this city the way that i want to run this city and what do you do if you're in that situation do you tell him no we can't do this (laughs) The guy who's your boss, who coordinated the operation, who is a hero to his colleagues, exactly. you would tell him in that scenario, I, I won't let you take this 50 grand and put no it in your shot. vest. It's a hard, that's a hard situation. And so putting that character in that position then, and then having that moral gray that he has to go through for the rest of the show, really powerful. And, and Hector is, is just a really good actor, like you said, Bill, without having to talk. You know, the same way Marlo standing on the corner darting his eyes back and forth as cars drove by told you everything you needed to know about his intelligence so i don't know i mean really well cast show this whole little ecosystem that they have of of actors and creative people behind the scenes on these baltimore shows is is fucking awesome like it's really really special i wish they would keep it going you know i was i was thinking about um the netflix thing because that's been in the news for a while right the stock went way down and people have all these different theories for it. And then one of the theories that I don't even think is a theory, I think it's a fact, is just they the algorithm basically took control of that entire app, right? All the choices, <laughs> all the shows they make are like those shows like the movie my wife watched a couple of days ago where somebody goes to Australia and she loves wine and 
and she meets this guy who works for a winery in Australia. Well, guess what? He turns out he owns the winery and she's in love with him. But she, and it's just, it's like, it's like they know stuff my wife would like. And it's like Australia, wine, romance, handsome guy. But the quality of the shows have gone really down. And, you know, the movies, it just feels like it's just so algorithm ridden. I don't think they could make a show like this and I don't think they would want to. So you have that, but then you also have the week to week thing that this show has. If you just threw these six on there and we had the chance, right? We had screeners and I wanted to watch it. And I asked Waz, I don't know if you obeyed, but I asked you to try to watch it once a week. So I would always watch the next episode, basically the day we did this podcast. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then hold. But I still feel like, there's real value in that. And yeah. um, the the one lesson of this show, and I think some other ones this year is that, and I think Stranger Things fell into this too. It's it's good to have dialogue for six weeks about a show and not just four days. You know, I think if they had just, HBO Max just dropped six episodes and like here, I think it would have been overwhelming. I think it would have been daunting. And I don't think it has the same impact as you're going through a journey with some of these characters. So it was just one thing I thought of. I I, I think they really need to figure that out, the binge model. Like I can see dropping two of these and then going once a week or even three, but not six. Can, can we talk about the TV problem right now? That is yeah. like, it's obvious what the problem is, is that Netflix is this huge dragon and just sprayed us with content. And everybody was like, well, they're the number one. So we should try to replicate that. But nobody can watch all of this shit. So they're wasting a lot of money. Like, it's so yep. obvious. And even HBO, I remember when the Max thing happened. And I would see the rate. Because obviously, you know, we've all been obsessed with HBO for decades now. And we know the rate that they push out content. And then Max comes along and they're pumping it out way more frequently than, you know, regular HBO used to. But at the same time, like, their batting average, as compared to a Netflix, it's not even close. You know, like... Right. It, it's just, like, the, the, the quality on average of an HBO show, even when they're doing a ramped-up version of it, it's not even close. And, you know... <laughs> I, I hate well, to be it's that. A, it's a trust thing though, right? Like exactly. I'm I am more willing to give an HBO show a chance than I am for Netflix. Netflix, it's like they almost have to prove to me, like Lincoln Lawyer. I don't know if that's a good show or not. I, I don't I know if that's it. just another algorithm show I, I or that's it. a show I should actually watch. I watched it because I like it the Matthew okay. McConaughey movie, and yeah, nah. I think you need right. Matthew McConaughey for that show. <laughs> it's a, but, it's. A, it's I do think Netflix, uh, like four or five years ago, I had way more trust in the, yeah. especially from a drama standpoint, because they had, they were doing more interesting stuff. They were doing stuff like Ozark. Sean, what do you, where do you stand on this? Well, let's use a very obvious NBA metaphor here. It's all about the question of expansion. If you expand the NBA into two more teams, you put a team in Seattle, you put mm. a team in Las Vegas, you got f more talent spread in a more diffuse way across the league and then the quality yep. of play is probably going to lessen and tv they didn't add two teams they added 20 teams and so now what you have is you know it's, the, the arts are like any other business there's only so many people that are good at this there's only so many people that really know how to make compelling work now on the ups on the upside and this is real a lot of people are getting to make shows that didn't used to get to make shows. And there are a lot of reasons yeah. for that culturally. A lot of people getting to tell stories that they didn't get to tell before. That's been a boon. Simultaneously to that, there's a lot of people who suck at telling stories that are given 12 episodes of one, of one hour and four minute shows. <laughs> and they're not good. And what Simon and Pelicanos did here that is super smart is they do what really good organizations do, which is they expand their pool of talent. Sure, they bring Jamie Hector back. Sure, they bring back a couple of actors they've worked with before, but they also empower Ronaldo Marcus Green to shoot this whole show. So good. And, and he is a dynamite filmmaker, as we know from King Richard. Really exciting dude. The way he shot this show is part of what made, frankly, a lot of the Wayne Jenkins stuff so exciting is mm -hmm. because he has this like right-on-your-shoulder intensity as they're kind of kicking doors in. And... Or actually, the Freddie Gray um, episode in particular, I was like, this is probably the best evocation I've seen 
of this issue that's been happening in the country. Like this is actually what mm. it would what it feels like to be on the front lines of this. And so they're just expanding their talent pool by plugging someone gifted into their system, which is really how you get quality work over the years. It's like you have to learn how to get better at the work. You can't just say, here's $50 million. You've never run a show before. Good luck. We're going to put it on Netflix and everything's going to drop on June 1st. Like that That's not a way to create quality work. This is a system that really works well. And HBO, you know, we're obviously biased, Bill, but they their track record is... 25 30 years long at this point like it's it's no it's it there's really no comparison in my mind well and they care about the quality so i'm glad you brought up ray green because that's another thing that i think made this show special they just catch a director at a point where two years from now he's not directing the show yep. he's 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 a big headed dog. for he's headed for greener pastures he's and he's just not going to be like cool i'm gonna spend a spider-man movie honestly <laughs> yeah no yeah that, that's that or he's doing Top Gun two or whatever. Yeah. Like that's just how this works. But um, I think with the with the Netflix thing, I don't know the answer because I feel like this is where we're going with television, right? I think the offer, which was on Paramount, is a really good example of this. That was a ten episode show that I think if it was six would have been awesome. Completely. And agree. ten, it's just too fat and bloated. I couldn't keep up with it. But here's the thing, too. Um, I think the problem is a problem of democracy. And that, and by which I mean the masses like bad stuff. And so, <laughs> and so mm. the Netflix, that thing you said about your wife and the algorithm and like that being the opposite of what we own this, this city is like, this is what the masses want. Like, Sean, I watched Spider-Man, the third one, uh, No Way Home or whatever on, um, on a flight back, uh, here from New York. And I was like, the first two movies are just way better than this shit. But guess what? When it came out, I remember you on your shows. It's like, people came out to see this. COVID be damned. The people love it. This is what the people want. Yeah. This, this is what they want. I don't know what to say. The masses have horrible tastes. And so we're we're just at the mercy of this. But that's how democracy works, you know? Yeah, I think Apple's, <laughs> Apple suffered from this, too. Apple's shot the t-shirt cannon with some shows and... And it's a little Netflix-esque where there's, it's very algorithmy. it feels, even though they don't have the same algorithm advantage Netflix does. But you can just see that all of their choices are these big, broad, we're trying to appeal to either, uh, like, this, this will appeal to our Asian market or this will appeal to our, like, rom-com market. And they just go huge, but they haven't made a lot of good stuff, you know? And the biggest success they've had was just a movie they bought. You know, the, so, o- the offer bill is such an interesting portal into some of the, this this kind of frustration that you're talking about because the whole point of that show is showing us the ways, like how hard it was for creative people to be trusted by the powers that be. You know, like the studio is owned by an oil company in the 1970s. <laughs> they have all this money and they're trying to fix Paramount. Robert Evans is trying yeah. to get hits. And they're turning to Francis Ford Coppola, a true artiste, you know, somebody who is like, I, I need to do all the things that feel true to my vision in order to execute on this story. And it's a war. It's so much of a war to get this stuff done that they made a 10 episode TV show about it. And the same is true today, except there's a lot of scientific reasoning going behind the way decisions are made as opposed to entrusting talented people. Now, trusting talented people as, as we all know, is, is complicated. Talented people are complicated. You know, they, they can be unpredictable. Yeah, but... fucking Wise is so complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can't believe, well, was, can't believe was, we're still with them. <laughs> I was just about to make an ESPN joke. You beat me to <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but so anyway, like, if you don't trust the talented people to do their work and you, you push them and say, we need a show for women 18 to 34, you know, unmarried who have a cat, you're going to get a certain kind of show, you know, like that's like that. That's and, and it's not going to feel creative. It's not going to feel original. You know, we own the city is not an invented world. It's a based on a true story. It just so happens to be made by deeply creative people. So I don't know. That's the I, lesson Sean, to I me. Think it's, empower I think it's I think it's worse than that. I think especially like a place like Netflix. I think they think their audience like they're going for the biggest collective number they can get. And their assumption is that that audience is not that smart. Yeah, And they have to dumb things down. Yeah, And you think like there's a strategy with their shows where 
every show has to have a little cliffhanger. So it'll make you want to watch the next mm -hmm. show. And it has to be easily explainable. And it has to have that trailer that the moment you click on the show and you say, what's this? They're explaining the show to you. They're, they're, they're putting, like when those little kids, when they're in the mall, the kids that can't sit still and their mom has to have the kid on a leash. Sean, don't ever put your kid on a leash. I'd say I'm all uh -oh. time anti leash for humans. <laughs> Too late. They have to put their kid on the on the leash because the kids and it's like Netflix puts the leash on their viewers and they're like, here, we don't trust you to walk around the mall. We're gonna have to pull you. And this is what this movie's about, and you're stupid. And I just I don't think that's gonna win. I really don't. And I and I really think that's part of the reason their stock price is down. Yeah, I'm a little bit um, more more cynical because, you know, when the Queen's Gambit thing came out and it became this runaway hit and the creator was like, these motherfuckers didn't want to do this. They just didn't want to do this. Like, everybody thought this was a waste of time and it failed. But, like, the reality is, like, for every Queen's Gambit, there's, like, seven Bridgertons. So, like... There's, like, 70 Bridgertons. You know what I mean? Like, and just so the audience knows, if you haven't seen that show, it's fucking bad. Okay, it's bad. It's just bad, objectively. But guess what? It's a major success, major hit. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you're Netflix and, you know, you're you're uh, held accountable by stockholders, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to put your energies into that, man. That's just no, you want you want outer banks, you want outer banks yep. and you want Bridgerton. Exactly. Even like Stranger Things. I don't know if I don't know I don't if Stranger Things happens happen I, with the, with the way Netflix is now. I think both things can be true. I think it can be a place where the Queen's Gambit and Squid Game happen. And because of the just the force of production that they have there, they're just making so much that they are going to land on some truly original or interesting stories. Um, to me, the more worrying aspect of the Netflix story is just the incredible reliance on reality programming and the dominance Ugh. of reality programming because that, to me, feels very much... You remember that moment? I want to say it was like the early 2000s when Fear Factor took off and NBC and The, the Apprentice was taking off and NBC just threw itself headlong into the reality race and then all of a sudden it just felt like every network had seven to ten net reality or game shows that were dominating their content and then it like it basically hollowed out a generation of creative voices and that led to the yeah. rise of hbo and showtime and all that stuff but if if netflix which is supposed to be a bastion for creators <laughs> that is a place that is already taking that lesson less than 20 years later that this is what people really want like waz is saying and you're right waz it's a little, it's it's a little demoralizing, honestly, as somebody who spends a lot of time talking about what's on TV. Especially well, as a snob like me, who even ended up watching the Ultimatum and liking it. <laughs> right? Yeah, I like I like some of those shows. That's just the for problem. the record. Some of them are entertaining. Yeah. Well, there's another piece of this. Like if if Lord of the Rings works for Amazon with the amount of money they're spending on that, Stranger Things clearly worked for Netflix, and I think that what was it like thirty million an episode, something like that. They were treating it like it was a Marvel movie. And will these big streamers, they'll, they'll both be cutting back on the amount of content they're making, but then gravitating toward the super expensive, always trying to get the James Harden Supermax contract type of shows versus like trying to develop um, smaller hits, trying to work with filmmakers on their way up and stuff like that. So I, I have no idea how the next four years will play out content wise. The Queen's Gambit thing will never happen again because I feel like the pandemic was a huge piece of that. There was, it came along at the perfect time in a whole bunch of ways. There weren't, that all the production had stalled on shows and it was one of the few shows left that was in the can. It was really good. It opened on a week where there was nothing going on. I specifically remember I was home with my wife that week, that weekend, that Friday, and we were just, we we're trapped in the house. It was a pandemic. We, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, what's Queen's Gambit? That looks interesting. Now it's like there's so much noise and so much content. I don't think that happens again. Netflix also fired the executive who developed that show like shortly after it launched. So <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> that tells you all you need to know. Yeah, that's not that's not great either. I uh, I still have faith. I think HBO as I long think as um, HBO. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think still about have faith in HBO. Yeah. Some of the stuff that they've done, like White Lotus, is a good example. Now, should oh, they have done so White good. Lotus season two? We'll find out. We'll find yeah. Out. Like that, they might have gone back to the well. Who knows? But you know, it's same thing. They that was a one creator, <laughs> a one person writing room show. 
which I think if I was running a network, I would be looking more at that kind of model versus like trying to put together. I just trust one voice. I wouldn't even care about a writer's room. And I think that you're going to get more interesting content. In this case, they cho- they trusted two people plus a director who was, you know, a really incredible get for the point he's at in his career. Um, but yeah, I hope we have more of these shows. I guess the last question we should ask is if, like if David Simon was on this Zoom with us, what would we tell him? Because I don't feel like his work should be done here. I, I feel like he is telling the most important stories of, just about anybody we have now. And I, I hope, I just hope he, he keeps pushing, but do you, or do you feel like Waz, this is it? Like he, the wire, this was the spiritual son of the wire and now we're done. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed stuff like the deuce. I enjoyed, um, the joint that he did with Oscar Isaac, but that just didn't feel as lived in as this and the wire because you know, he literally lived in Baltimore, right? Yeah. Like he ate, breathed, slept this stuff. And I think there's a material difference to those works and these works. So I don't know, like, how often can you go back to that same well? I mean, I know personally me now, like if if David, if David Simon is doing anything having to do with the city of Baltimore, I'm completely locked in. Um, but, you know, as a creative person, People don't want to keep doing the same stuff over and over again, right? So I don't know how you square that circle, honestly. I have an idea. I'm going to pitch it to Sean. Sean, you're the you're the head of HBO Max. Casey Boys has resigned. Okay, that seems <laughs> that seems like a reasonable jump in my career. Simon, um, <laughs> he hits newspapers in season five of The Wire, which became a controversial season that is now like severely underrated. Season mm-hmm. five's it's a good excellent. season. People are like, ah, season five, wheels came off. It's like, yeah, there's one, (laughs) you're right. Wow, There's one mistake. Yeah, the docs are tough. tough. I I think season five is better than season two. I know it's hipster to say the docs, well, they actually showed you how square people are meant. Nah, docs is whack. Stop um, it. So he hits newspapers, but if he dove into newspapers in 2022, in this decade, and just what their relationship is to the community, how they've been able to to figure out a little bit how to stay profitable, which was, you know, seemed impossible 10 years ago. And it seemed like even recently, five years ago, we had the guy, the guys who created The Athletic basically saying, we're, we're, we're here to kill newspapers. Mm-hmm. And now newspapers seem to have survived that. And they have a lot of complicated stuff in a whole bunch of ways. There's union stuff with newspapers that um, versus management. There's how to keep talent. There's podcasting. There's all these different things, but also you're supposed to be covering your area. And sometimes there's not money in that. Sometimes there's more area to cover everything. Like mm-hmm. the New York Times isn't a New York newspaper anymore. It's a national newspaper. I th- I would love to see him dive into the world of newspapers. I know he won't, but that would be... If he came to me and was like, hey, I, what show should I do next? I'm really interested in, I don't, I just don't feel like every, anybody's nailed newspapers. Way back when, late 70s or early 80s, they spun Lou Grant off Mary Tyler Moore and they did the Lou Grant show, which was drama. kind of the prestige show of its time. It won multiple Emmys and it's an amazing Ed Asner thing where he's just this funny guy on Mary Tyler Moore and now he's running a newspaper and they go a whole different direction and it's an early prestige show. And really since then, nobody's gone into newspapers at all, which I don't really fully understand. Well, anyway, that's my pitch. It's interesting. I'll say that the stuff in season five, as I get older, that bothers me more is the serial killer stuff that I felt like was a little bit ham-fisted with McNulty. <laughs> yeah, um, it definitely was. There's no it, question. You know, in when when season five was airing, I was basically like a young reporter. I was a young writer and journalist, and I I thought it was a little bit over the top the way that they characterize some of that stuff. But I know how angry David Simon is about the way that newspapers work and the way that they devolved in that era. In fairness to him, We Own the City is based on. Justin Fenton's book, We Own This City, which he's a Baltimore Sun crime reporter. I mean, he's basically a young pup, David Simon. And so he obviously still has a lot of respect for that world and especially for the people who do that work, which kind of like cops is slow and boring and hard and requires conversations and actions that you don't necessarily want to be pursuing all the time. So would it be interesting for him? I mean, personally, I think with his like 
his anger and his frustration at broken systems, I think it'd be fascinating to plug him into like the New York Times. Like everything that's happened in the New York Times in the last five years and the way that yeah. national discourse has kind of poisoned the purpose of civic institutions. Because that's really what he is about. He's a civic artist. He's somebody who goes into a city, whether it be in Jersey and Show Me a Hero, whether it be in New York City in the 70s and the Deuce, or whether it be in Baltimore in these stories that he's been telling. And he shows us like what's underneath everyone's fingernails. You know, he shows us the grime and the frustration and the anger and the rage and the insecurity that animates some of the most complicated parts of living in a city at that time. So as long as he's able to go to a place like that and explore a story about the good and bad decisions that people make, like I'm in, I will watch anything he's done. I, I There's nothing I wouldn't do, but I've, I'm, I've been with you guys through this whole season in that when he's in Baltimore, he like Wa said, it's the he feels lived in. It feels like a place where he really understands how the people move. I would be in for Baltimore Sun or New York Times if they decided to tackle that. But yeah, it just hasn't happened that many times where we've dove into um where newspapers are as we head in head into like the full fledged subscription era, which I think is now successful. And I think ten years ago you would have said it wasn't gonna be successful. Now it is. What does that mean going forward? What does that mean when you're um, being incentivized by profit and by eyeballs and by making waves versus like just doing good reporting and how do you balance the nuances of your reporters or also on podcasts and and then also like the discourse of you if you're not on this side you're on this side and there's no nuance with that either so yeah what does it mean to rake me over the coals for New York Times cooking it doesn't even come with your New York Times subscription I mean, <laughs> right. Jesus Christ these people aren't making enough money. <laughs> um, all right, we'll end on that. We own this city. Hold A-plus. on, no, we can't end on that, Bill. The Mets are in first place right Hell now. Hell yeah. In the NL East. That's what we gotta end on. <laughs> Unbelievable. And the, Ra- and the Rangers are in the final four, and yeah. the Yankees are good again. We're living in it's, New York City right and, now. And We're the living. Knicks are, are hopeless as usual. <laughs> yes. The New York sports is back. Mid 90s are back. Um, all right, Big Waz. Good to see you, Sean Fantasy. Good to see you as well. Thanks to Donnie for producing this one. And uh, that's it for Prestige. How many Barry episodes do you have left, Sean? Just two. Two more. Haven't seen them yet. Waiting to see seven and eight. Well, six, you you covered it with Hater. Six was a banger. Did you see six, Waz? No, I have not checked that out yet, but I will pretty soon here. Six was a a movie. It was. Six was indescribable. Great job. All right, we'll see you next time in the Prestige. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.